Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod, Israel Policy Forum's podcast. I'm Evan Gottesman, Associate Director of Policy and Communications at Israel Policy Forum. So today we have a special program for you. This morning I had the opportunity to speak with Tamara Kaufman-Wittes of the Brookings Institution on a briefing call as part of Israel Policy Forum's Annexation Watch campaign. And that call focused on the regional implications of West Bank annexation, how different countries in the Middle East would respond to an Israeli annexation of all or part of the West Bank territory. So what follows is a recording of that call for anyone who missed the program or wants to give it another listen. So without further ado, here's today's Annexation Watch briefing call with Tamara Kaufman-Wittes. I hope you find it informative. Thank you for joining this uh, Israel Policy Forum webinar on the regional impacts of West Bank annexation. Uh, I'm Evan Gottesman, the Associate Director of Policy and Communications at Israel Policy Forum. And we're joined by Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, who is a senior fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings. She served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs uh, from November 2009 up until January 2012 during the Arab Spring uprisings. Um, And so is very much well suited to speak to the issue of how the Middle East region, the country, and the peoples of that area would respond to a big shift in the dynamic like West Bank annexation. So just to start things off, uh, Tamara, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm delighted to be here and I'm, I'm sorry I'm not on video with all of you who are uh, joining the webinar today. I'm sitting here in beautiful Tel Aviv and I would love to show you uh, uh, behind me the background of this gorgeous city, um, but uh, unfortunately the technology did not cooperate, but uh, at least you have my voice and, and looking forward to our conversation. Great. So, um, so just to start things off, looking at West Bank annexation, if Israel were to move forward with uh, officially absorbing um, all or part of the West Bank, um, changing the dynamic in a significant way, what could we expect the immediate impact to be from governments in the Middle East area? Um, from particularly from the Arab states, um, the Gulf. Yeah, look, I I think you should expect the immediate reaction to be a rejection, um, both of the annexation and of what is likely to be Trump administration recognition of annexation. Let me start by saying I think that what's most likely is not a full-scale annexation of the West Bank, but rather annexation of specific uh, blocks, maybe even only one uh, block to start of Israeli settlement. And the argument that uh, the Israeli government will make is we have no Palestinian partner, we have no active negotiating process, the Oslo framework has failed, Uh, and we need to take our fate into our own hands and act unilaterally. Now, as many of of you probably know, this is not the only unilateral path that Israel might take. There have been proposals made for various forms of unilateral withdrawal as well. Um, So I don't think there's any way for the Israeli government to avoid being perceived by Arab states and by a lot of the international community as having made a choice um, that is not in any way the only choice uh, or the only viable choice available to it. So that's that's the first thing. Um, The second thing that I think will shape 
reactions in the region um, is that land for peace has been the principle at the heart of not just Palestinian-Israeli peacemaking, but all Arab-Israeli peacemaking, beginning with uh, the Israel-Egypt negotiations, um, including the peace with Jordan, um, land for peace is the principle enshrined in UN Security Council resolutions in American policy and every foundational um, uh, document for Arab-Israeli diplomacy. And land for peace is a quid pro quo, right? That um, Israel gives up territory and it gets normalized relationships with its Arab neighbors. And so the natural uh, immediate question from Arab governments will be, well, if you are planning to keep this land permanently, then why on earth should you expect normalization of relations? The, the trade-off is gone. The quid pro quo is broken. Um, and so I think even if that's not how their reactions are framed in immediate terms, um, in immediate terms, I think it'll just be a flat rejection. Uh, in strategic terms, that's the significance uh, for Israel and for its broader Arab neighborhood. Now, you mentioned normalization of relations and gave a, a focus to Egypt and Jordan, um, as we know, are the two Arab countries that have official relations with Israel, that share a peace treaty with Israel. Um, how would those relationships be impacted in particular by a development like the annexation of a major settlement block, say Maale Adumim or um, parts of Area C, um, and, and the official step away from the state model, because Jordan and Egypt have both uh, endorsed that model. They're, they're both supportive of the process towards a Palestinian state and a viable solution. Um, and they also have this sort of uh, cold peace, but a sustainable peace with Israel. Um, that's lasted in the case of Egypt for 40 years and with Jordan uh, for a quarter century. So um, what can we expect to see from those relationships? Uh, sure. Well, first, I think um, let's talk about what it means in terms of their uh, bilateral relationships with Israel. And then we also have to talk about what it means for them domestically and what it means for them and their relationships within the Arab world. Because for both of these states, this is not just about their own peace treaties with, with Israel, their own bilateral relationships with Israel. It also is very much about domestic politics and inter-Arab politics. That's unavoidable. So the first thing is, you know, as with the American recognition of the Golan annexation, um, you know, there, the, the question of how this relates to the commitments Israel made to them, to the Jordanian and Egyptian governments in those bilateral peace treaties, uh, I think that Israeli commitments um, were made to negotiate uh, in the Oslo framework and to negotiate the disposition of the territory in the West Bank and not to undertake unilateral steps, um, permanent steps with respect to this territory. And so if Israel violates that core commitment, um, then I think Jordan and Egypt may well wonder what about the commitments Israel made to us in our peace treaties. Now, in, in, that, in those two cases, of course, in practical terms, Israel has a very strong interest in maintaining those treaties. So do Jordan and Egypt. I don't expect, in fact, a crisis 
uh, that could shake those treaties. But I do think it creates a crisis of confidence. Um, I think for Egypt, it creates an immediate question of how it's going to position itself relative to the Palestinian Authority um, and the, the very careful work that the Egyptians have been doing uh, between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas um, to try and broker a reconciliation and reunify Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza under one authority. Um, it will be almost impossible for Egypt to continue those efforts, I think, in the face of a crisis in Israeli-Palestinian relations. And that puts Egypt in a, in a weakened position diplomatically in the region and on the Palestinian issue. Um, for Jordan, I think the consequences are even more uh, dire because Jordan is in a very delicate situation in terms of its domestic politics already. Um, its economy uh, is rooted in a state-driven patronage model that has been running out of gas for years and surviving on foreign aid uh, and subsidies from the Gulf and from the United States. The United States now gives Jordan over a billion dollars a year. Um, but even with that, uh, the, the Jordanian government has faced real challenges, not just creating jobs, but providing enough electricity, providing basic infrastructure, healthcare, education, for its population. And last year, there were riots in the summer in Jordan over uh, increased taxes, subsidy cuts, and electricity issues. And uh, with Ramadan coming to an end, I was just in Jordan actually for a week before I came here to Tel Aviv. And everyone is expecting that those protests will break out again once, once Ramadan is over and things get even hotter in the Jordanian summer. So the king is already in a very delicate position. As you know, a majority of the Jordanian population is Palestinian. So if we're gonna see significant mass mobilization in the wake of an annexation move anywhere in the Arab world, you're gonna see it first in Jordan. And I think that given the existing domestic challenges, it just adds additional fuel to the fire. And I think the fact that King Abdullah uh, knows all this, and he's very, very worried about this, is why you see uh, him being so strong in, in refusing the preference of his Saudi uh, funders to go to the Bahrain Economic Conference that Jared Kushner is organizing. And you see Jared Kushner going out to see the king in just a few days' time to try and, I don't know, twist his arm or persuade him or perhaps a, a little bit of both. Um, so I think we really do need to worry about Jordanian stability. Now, does that mean that, you know, there's going to be mass protests and riots in the streets the day after an annexation law passes the Israeli Knesset? No, I don't expect that. Um, but I do expect that, you know, this is a situation for, the, for Jordan where the equation is already very, there's a lot of risk in this equation already. And you're just adding more, um, you're adding more straw into the back of this camel. And at some point, it's going to break. So you, you've laid out a pretty alarming uh, projection for, for how things could go, how things could pan out with, um, you know, with Egypt and with particularly Jordan, these two uh, countries that have been 
um, you know, gone from longtime enemies of Israel to being critical pillars of Israeli security and of American interests in the Middle East. And you mentioned uh, Jared Kushner's uh, trip to the Middle East. Um, he's there with Jason Greenblatt, um, another core member of the American team uh, working on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict right now. They're in Morocco, as you mentioned, going to Jordan, going to Israel as well. Um, could you elaborate a little more on what you expect um, they're trying to do there? Because the American attitude toward uh, the Israeli right and toward annexation and a move away from two-state solution has been uh, sort of permissive, to say, to say the least. Um, there, there's a wide expectation that the Trump plan will deviate from the traditional parameters of a, a viable two-state solution. Um, so what are they trying to sell to these Arab governments in Morocco and, and to Jordan in the lead up to this Bahrain conference uh, coming up at the end of June? Yeah, well, I think to start, we have to understand that they are not going there to talk about their political plan. Um, they are not going there to reveal details of what they want to put on the table in terms of the status of Jerusalem or borders or settlements or refugees. They are going to Morocco and Jordan to talk about the economic conference that they're convening in Bahrain. And they are going to sell uh, participation in that conference by saying to these two relatively poor Arab countries, um, but who are politically aligned with the Saudis, um, to say to the two of them, you guys will get some money out of this too. This, this economic vision that we're laying out at the end of June is going to be good for you too. And by the way, if you don't play ball with us on this, uh, it's going to come out badly for you. These are two states that get significant American assistance. They get significant trade and economic support from the Gulf as well, as I said. And uh, it's quite possible, I, I would not at all put it past uh, the Trump administration to try and leverage um, or maybe even threaten that support uh, and say to these guys, hey, you know, you need to play on our team at this Bahrain conference or our relationship is going to be very different. So I, I suspect that's the primary agenda. Now, when they come here to, to Israel, uh, they may, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens here. We're not sure whether we're going to have a government uh, tomorrow night or not uh, with whom they can meet. Uh, and so if the Israeli Knesset dissolves and we're going to have snap elections in September, then, you know, this whole economic workshop may get postponed. Uh, the whole Trump peace plan may get postponed. It may get postponed indefinitely. Um, and it, so one question I have, given the events of today in Israeli politics, is whether we might actually see Kushner and Greenblatt move up the Israel part of their itinerary, and instead of coming here last, they might come here tomorrow to see if they can have some impact on the, on the coalition negotiations, because as we've already seen, President Trump has some very clear, very public views on that, and he's, he's happy to uh, let his influence be felt. Keeping things uh, just for a moment on the, the Arab government perspective, though, as you mentioned, uh, the Trump administration has been really keen to avoid talking about the political element of their plan, uh, going so far as keeping this conference in Bahrain mostly, um, sorry, not mostly, entirely about the economic side of their plan. 
but can the governments that they're visiting, can Morocco and Jordan and these other countries, um, can they just look at it from the economic perspective? I mean, I feel like naturally they're going to um, want to discuss or get a feel for what the political element is, especially if there's something in there. Dynamic on the two-state solution. Yeah, look, I I think it's extremely difficult for these governments, or frankly, for any government, um, to set aside the political and look only at the economic. I I everything that I can see so far from the way Jared Kushner has approached this issue, um, and from everything that we have read about their approach um, in the plan that they that they are developing or have developed, they believe that everyone has a price and that the Palestinians will be willing to sell out their, um, their commitment, at their principled claim to national self-determination and sovereignty for the right price. Uh, and I'm sure they believe that of the Jordanians and Moroccans as well. But it's, you know, I... I I'm trying to imagine myself in the position of King Abdullah of Jordan when these guys show up at his door and say, we want you to buy into this economic conference. We're not going to tell you what the political price is that you're going to pay for this. We're just telling you that uh, you have to sign on. And if you sign on, you'll get some monetary benefits. And if you don't sign on, you'll get some monetary punishment. Um, But we're not going to tell you the political price. And, you know, what, what is a, a head of government supposed to do in that circumstance? He cannot sell out his national interest, even for, you know, the highest price. It's basically saying, yes, I, I am prepared to destabilize my own uh, rule, my own, you know, um, lifespan and power for the sake of whatever check you say you're going to write to me or whatever pledge you say the Gulf is going to give to me. And I I just don't think that's the deal uh, any king of Jordan is going to go for. Um, Now, you know, uh, desperate desperate times call for desperate measures. um, And a billion dollars in American assistance for a country of 22 million people or so is significant leverage. Uh, But I I also suspect that... um, that the Jordanians and the Moroccans will be working on the assumption that even if President Trump wants to punish them for not going along with his peace plan, at the end of the day, Congress probably will not agree to punish them. And so, you know, I I think the question in my mind is whether the political part of this Kushner-Greenback peace plan is already iced and done and uh, no edits are possible, or whether Kushner can sit down with King Abdullah, hear him out, and adjust the plan in ways that give him something on the political side that he can work with, something on Jerusalem, something on the nature of Palestinian uh, self-government or self-determination. And if that's the case, then we'll know that Kushner, A, wants a plan to actually have a chance of success, and B, cares about Jordanian stability. Um, but if the king, you know, lays out his concerns and Kushner's attitude is, well, sorry, buddy, it's my way or the highway, then, you know, I have real questions about 
whether the Trump administration is concerned at all about the stability of this region. They say they want to make peace, not only for the sake of Israelis and Palestinians, but for American interests and the stability of the Middle East. And, you know, the survival of Jordan, to me, is uh, pretty core to the stability of the Middle East. I guess that hinges on whether or not you view the plan as a real political and economic program that the administration wants to work, or the view that's taken by a lot of people that it's kind of this cynical ploy to change the parameters on Israeli-Palestinian peace and sort of uh, force the Trump administration's agenda, particularly with the Palestinian Authority, um, but elsewhere in the Middle East as well. Um, and I think you know, I, I don't assume I don't assume it's a cynical ploy. Okay, I do think that they want to change the parameters. I think that they do want to overturn the Oslo framework. They have said the two state framework didn't work, so we're not going to talk about it. But they've also said they're not. This is not a detailed document with every you know T crossed and I dotted. They said this is a vision. We're trying to paint a vision and the parties can negotiate from there. Um, so, you know, I, <laughs> I, I don't think you need to be conspiratorial to conclude that this is not a plan that's going to address the core concerns of both sides in a meaningful sense. You can, you can see that it is not a plan that's going to do that and say it's because they don't really understand or because they think people can be bought off or for a variety of other reasons, not necessarily because they want to engineer some, uh, some unilateral Israeli outcome. And looking at the way that they're going to try to take this forward, regardless of their intentions, um, we've talked a lot about the government response to what they're going to do, um, but you also started to touch on, and I was hoping you could elaborate on the response on the ground from the publics in these different Arab countries, because when there was the decision by the Trump administration to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, to move the American embassy there, there were a lot of uh, predictions some that seemed more apocalyptic than others, that this would provoke a really violent response, uh, both among the Palestinian public in the West Bank um, and the Gaza Strip, but also in other Arab countries. And that was one of the key arguments against moving the embassy outside of the parameters of a peace deal and against recognizing the capital outside of those parameters. Um, but again, that didn't seem to really fully pan out. Um, and likewise, with the talk of West Bank annexation, one of the things that we hear about is, well, how will the Arab publics respond? And you've touched on as a calculation that the Jordanian government is making and other Arab governments are making in how to respond to annexation as they're thinking about how will their publics respond. Um, so how do we square how we predict that and, and, and work around that with the relatively tame response um, on the ground that seemed to come from the Jerusalem decision? Right. So, look, in advance of uh, Trump's move on the embassy and recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, there were a lot of people saying, you know, if you do that, the sky is going to fall and there are going to be riots and there's going to be a new intifada. 
Um, I didn't think that at the time. I didn't say that at the time. I think that was not the right way to think about the consequences of this action. Um, mass, you know, mass movements are notoriously difficult to analyze. They are notoriously complex phenomena. The real concern about the embassy move from the beginning, in my view, is not that it would spark riots in the immediate sense, but that by, by um, chipping away at Palestinians' hopes for political outcomes that meet their, their core demands or their core expectations, it would degrade either over time, immediately, but it would degrade Palestinians' willingness to put their faith in any negotiating process. Um, so, if you you know if you take that and you try to uh, analogize it to what's going on in the broader Arab context, as I said, Jordan is already very fragile in socioeconomic terms. It's very fragile in its political balance, um, and it has half of its population who feel not just sympathy with the Palestinian cause, but identification with the Palestinian cause. And so it's um, an extremely delicate situation already. Um, so uh, what I would say, if I'm you know, trying to be a careful analyst of likely consequences, what I would say is that when you have a complex, delicate, political balance, any one of a hundred things could upset that balance. Um, and so it would be a time in which I would argue one should, if one cares about not upsetting the balance, proceed with extreme caution, be risk averse. Annexation is the opposite of that. Um, it is a unilateral Israeli move to determine borders in defiance of decades and decades of accepted by Israel, accepted diplomatic principles. Um, and therefore, and to do that at, at a price being paid by Palestinians in terms of lands that they believed would be under negotiation, okay? So people say, well, it doesn't matter. These blocks were gonna be part of Israel under any possible agreement. Okay, but the point is that they would become part of Israel under an agreement that Palestinians and Israelis would negotiate and agree to together. And they would become part of Israel in exchange for land swaps of territory from Israel. So if you take that context away, um, it's not, you know, oh, it doesn't matter. This was always going to be the way things worked out. It's, it's an entirely different from a Palestinian perspective and an Arab perspective an entirely different outcome from what was expected um, in negotiations. And so it has the power to destroy hope, to unbalance politics. More broadly, setting Jordan aside, what I would say is that the Arab world since the revolutions, and you know, in Egypt in particular since the coup in 2013, have become more rather than less repressive. Um, dissent is, uh, is highly costly uh, in these Arab states right now. And um, Palestine in that context becomes a relatively safe, relatively convenient 
issue around which to organize people. The government can't say, you know, you're wrong for being upset about this <laughs> um, because the government itself uh, is going to say it's upset about this. And so it gives people an excuse to go out into the street when they might be angry about bread prices, they might be angry about housing costs, they might be angry because their cousin got disappeared or their father got tortured um, or extrajudicially murdered. And there are tens of thousands of political prisoners in Egypt right now, but there can't be protests in Egypt right now because the police would forcefully shut them down. But a protest on Palestine, it's much harder for the government to shut down. And so I think it, it could be kind of the excuse that uh, dissenters, whether they're peaceful dissenters, extremist dissenters, or any other variety of dissenters, it could be the excuse that they are looking for uh, to come out in a way that they otherwise wouldn't be allowed to. And looking at how that's going to function, um, the response from the different Arab publics um, to this uh, and squaring it with the response of the governments, something that the governments are probably also thinking about are their relationships with other actors in the Middle East. And we've talked a lot about the American-aligned and Saudi-aligned governments of the Middle East, uh, but not so much the other bloc, the Iranian-aligned uh, bloc with the Syrian government, Hezbollah, Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, um, and other actors that, that side more with the Iranians um, and that tend to want to act as a spoiler or in opposition to the Saudi government and to the American-aligned uh, factions in the Middle East. So how are they going to look at annexation? Because they're already sort of automatically aligned anti-Israel, anti-United States. Um, are they going to look to be exploiting this dynamic in any way? Um, and the, the change that annexation would usher in? Uh, yeah, sure. They will definitely be looking to exploit that opportunity. I think the Iranians have done very well ever since the Islamic Revolution um, in looking for uh, opportunities around the region that they could exploit for their own purposes. And, uh, and especially in the years since the Arab Spring, they've had a lot of opportunities to exploit and they've done very well. Um, but more than that, you know, after I got here to Israel a couple of days ago, I was meeting with an old professor of mine, actually, um, uh, who specializes in the Arab world. And he said, you know, the problem in the region today is a problem of Arab weakness. For Israel, the challenge used to be Arab strength, right? This massive Egyptian army trying to destroy Israel, this massive Iraqi army trying to destroy Israel. The problem today is a problem of Arab weakness. And he, he pointed out that the, the powers in the region, the countries in the region that have the resources and capabilities to actually shape events and shape the trajectory are Iran, Turkey, and Israel. Um, and, and none of the Arab states are really effective, either alone or jointly, and they're not very effective at acting jointly uh, at all. Um, they don't have the capability right now to counter uh, the activities of Russia, of Turkey, and Iran, and Israel. Um, and, you know, and so point number one, Israel has 
a lot of sway now over regional events. And the actions Israel takes, the policies it chooses, will have a, a big effect on the region in a way that wasn't perhaps true um, 30 or 40 years ago, uh, or maybe even 20 years ago. Um, but the other thing is that Iran and Turkey are looking for any opportunity they can find to expand their own influence at the expense of these Arab states. And so when Trump moved the embassy, for example, uh, and uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, issued a very mild statement in response. Um, and uh, the Egyptians issued a fairly mild statement in response. Um, and Kushner and the White House said, see, everyone said the sky was falling and it wasn't good, and it didn't fall. So that's why we don't listen to the Middle East experts. Well, what happened? Erdogan, the, the neo-Ottoman dictator of Turkey, um, convened an emergency meeting of the Islam Organization of Islamic Conference, basically on behalf of the Muslim world, gathered heads of state in Turkey to protest uh, the U.S. policy shift on Jerusalem. And who was it from the Arab world who flew to Turkey uh, for that conference in spite of the fact that the Saudis uh, and the Egyptians tried to make it like it wasn't a big deal? The King of Jordan, King Abdullah. He had to because of his own uh, domestic political concerns and his own legitimacy, which is rooted in part uh, in his connection to Jerusalem and the role that he plays in overseeing holy sites in Jerusalem. And so, you know, Erdogan has the ability to show up the Arab state on Israeli-Palestinian issues. He did it on Jerusalem, he's done it on Gaza, and he will do it again in this situation if he gets the chance. And some Arab, Arab governments, including again, perhaps the King of Jordan, will go along with it. For the Iranians, of course, it's, um, it's more of an ideological kind of validator uh, that, it, that it has the effect of kind of reinforcing the narrative that they have um, about the region, about Israel, about the relationship between the United States and Israel and the way that affects the region. And therefore, it helps them um, maintain the cohesion and support of their proxy fighters uh, around the region, and it helps them maintain the support of their own population. So yeah, I think it would be a gift to both of those guys uh, if Netanyahu goes forward with annexation. And so I'll just come back around to the point my professor made. You know, if Israel, Iran, and Turkey, the three non-Arab states in this region, are the ones with the greatest capability of, to affect the region, then isn't it incumbent on Israel to think not just what what does it want to do about the settlements or what does it want to do about the Palestinians, but what kind of region does it want to live in? And and how does it help to create a region that is safer for Israel? So you made an interesting comment there that, that stood out to me, which is that Israel has the uh, power to affect uh, the regional dynamic, which I, I think is a, is a departure from the way things were uh, for a very long time with Israel in a state of uh, sort of isolation from the other countries of the region. And um, even if, if it had military prowess relative uh, political weakness. So given this change in, 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 in a relatively recent time span and an elevation of Israel's position in the Middle East, 
Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the negative outcomes that annexation can have and um, some of the potential consequences that that could bring about. Um, is there a way uh, different from annexation that you see Israel um, having the potential to positively impact the region and, and positively affect uh, the way things work in the Middle East? Well, sure. I mean, I, I think that there are a number of ways, and I don't think that those Israeli policies all necessarily have to do with uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, one of the ways in which Israel has been shaping the region over the last uh, number of years, the last six, eight years, has been um, its growing uh, commercial relationships and intelligence relationships with repressive Gulf Arab states. So, you know, the fact that Israel's um, export control authority has allowed uh, Israeli high-tech companies to export hacking software, surveillance software, um, and, and other uh, kinds of things that increase the government's repressive power to these really abusive states, um, that has an effect on the region. Now, in the short term, um, the Israeli government may say, well, you know, uh, the Saudis agree with us about Iran, and so uh, it's good to strengthen the Saudis. We'll do a favor for the Saudis. We'll let them have this technology. But the thing is, you know, once you start creating these kinds of intelligence technologies and military technologies, which by and large the Israelis have not, to my knowledge, um, sold much of in the Arab world, um, you know, when you create these technologies and you export these technologies to other governments, you don't have control over how they then use them. And just as the Israelis are always concerned about what the United States sells to Israel's Arab neighbors, saying, well, a helicopter may be good for fighting terrorists, but it might also be used against us, right? The Israelis make that argument all the time, and they're right. Um, and the same thing is true of the kinds of technologies and capabilities that the Israelis are exporting right now. So number one is they need to think about their export control regime and how they ensure that they're acting responsibly in their budding partnerships with the Arab states. Number two, they could think about how they, how they feel about American assistance uh, and American arms sales and American engagement on issues beyond immediate counterterrorism and counter-Iranian affairs with the Arab states. If the Israeli government wanted to invest in regional stability um, by uh, making its own determinations about uh, how to strengthen stability in the region and governments in the region and share that view with the United States, it could, it could do that. Um, and when it comes to its immediate neighbors, Jordan and Egypt, it has done that, but hasn't done that in a more strategic manner. And then, of course, and we do come to Israel's relationship with the Palestinians, not because the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the determinant of stability in the Middle East, but because Israel's conflict with the Palestinians is the one thing that every Arab everywhere in the region knows about Israel. <laughs> um, and so, you know, just as the United States thinks about its uh, reputation among populations around the world um, and worries about the impact of things like Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib on our ability to build partnerships, um, Israel needs to think about the impact of, of continued occupation of settlements um, of its policy toward Gaza on perceptions of Israel. The more Israel starts to 
build these quiet relationships with Arab governments, the more that stuff should matter uh, to Israel. Um, and, you know, and that's, that's all the least kind of self-interested reason why Israel should rethink its, its uh, policies toward the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The biggest reasons, of course, are for the sake of its own um, citizenry and its own future. Uh, the idea, you know, behind annexation, as it's argued by its proponents, is that Israel needs to take its fate into its hands, and it can't leave that, the resolution of the conflict to uh, a process of negotiation when there is no process of negotiation. And I, I, I'm sympathetic to that. Of course I'm sympathetic to that. Um, and, and so I think, you know, I would argue uh, that uh, the next Israeli government, no matter who heads it, no matter who it's composed of, needs to think very hard about what it can do unilaterally, both to maintain security uh, and, importantly, security partnerships with the Palestinian Authority, what it can do to help stabilize the authority within its own society and help to manage the very uncertain question of the succession of the Palestinian leadership. And then ultimately, what kind of what kind of relationship does Israel want to have with the Palestinians 10 years or 20 years or 30 years from now? Um, what we have today, this pressing for annexation, to me, in historic terms, is more a result of drift. Um, and uh, and I think that it, those who are making the argument on behalf of the annexation are not addressing medium-term or long-term consequences. They're, they're saying, well, it's an answer to the problem we have right now, which is that we have no partner and we're frustrated. Um, but sometimes solving one problem can create a whole new set of problems. And, uh, and so I think, you know, it's hard. It's hard for democratic societies in particular to think longer term. Um, but I think it's, it's absolutely essential for Israel to do so on this, at this moment. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to throw one more quick question to Tamara, but I also want to open this uh, to questions from our audience. Um, so if you see on the right side of your video call window, there's a chat box. Um, you can type your questions there and we'll select some of them uh, to uh, to be presented for tomorrow to answer, um, to get the, to get a feel for your questions and what you want to know about the regional impact of annexation in the Middle East. Um, so again, that's on the right side of your, um, of your video call screen. But in the meantime, um, the last thing, uh, I guess I'll, I'll put to you is you mentioned a lot of these, uh, covert, um, relationships that Israel has these um, or unofficial commercial relationships that they have with the Gulf states, just playing devil's advocate. These are already taking place under the context of um, a situation in which Israel doesn't have relations with most of these countries. Israel doesn't have relations with uh, the Gulf countries, only has the official relationships with Jordan and Egypt. Um, so how would you respond to the idea that they can do these relationships, um, these commercial ties without an official political relationship now? Um, why should the situation after annexation be any different? 
will it be any different? Right. Um, so I think it's the difference between uh, each side, the, the Gulf states on the one hand and Israel on the other, each side pursuing um, this covert relationship, if you will, or what I would, I would call it like a, an illicit love affair, you know, behind a curtain, um, in the context of stasis, in the context of a frozen uh, conflict, um, which is where we are today. Um, and uh, after re-annexation, it would be in a very different context, which is a context in which an Israeli government would make an affirmative choice, it's not being forced on them, an affirmative choice to take a unilateral step to permanently annex territory uh, that is supposed to be subject to bilateral negotiation under principles that Israel agreed to, that the Palestinians agreed to, and that the Arab world as a whole has agreed to for years. And again, not only in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but in the Israeli-Arab conflict as a whole. So I, I don't think you can say, why would this make a difference? It would make an immediate and obvious difference. Now, how much of a difference? Um, you're right. These relationships are ongoing. They're there because of mutual interest. There's a shared sense of threat from the Iranians, which is very real and very meaningful. And the cooperation that's resulted is valuable and beneficial for both sides. So why wouldn't we expect that to continue? Maybe it will continue. Um, but it would continue in a context in which the Arab governments are constantly saying to themselves, just as they had to say to themselves after Trump suddenly tweeted that he was withdrawing from Syria, they said, oh, we, we thought we had a good relationship with this guy, but now he's done this thing without taking us into account at all, right? And it made them rethink, who is this guy that we're dealing with? And the same thing would inevitably happen in terms of their interactions with Netanyahu. So it would reduce, to the extent that there is trust, it would reduce trust. It would certainly reduce their willingness to give Netanyahu any political credit in their relationship, and that would make the relationship harder. Um, you know, I, I think the other question is, how much farther can these quiet, covert, behind-the-curtain relationships go without progress on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that brings progress to Palestinians. Um, I, I remain convinced from everything I've seen and heard in my travels in the Arab world and my engagement with Arab officials, that while they see this, um, this covert relationship with the Israelis, or you know, it's not only covert, there are visits, but this limited relationship with the Israelis as having value, there is a hard limit on how far they are willing to take it. And so, you know, you, Israel can be the, the mistress behind the curtain, but if you want to have a wedding, um, then you got to do, you got to do something serious to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And speaking of efforts to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, we have a question from Susie Stern. Uh, drawing attention to the, the Trump plan and the Trump administration's efforts in the region. Um, Susie asks, who will be paying for all the aid that Kushner and the Trump, uh, the Trump team have promised um, as part of their economic package um, for the Palestinians? Um, you know, with the sense that in past experience, um, the Arab states have not always 
um, fulfilled all of their commitments um, to the Palestinians. Um, so who do we expect uh, is going to step in, uh, to step up to the plate uh, for what the Trump administration is asking of them in this area? Yeah, well, hi, Susie, that's a great question. Um, I, I wish I could tell you for sure, <laughs> but I think we don't know. First of all, because we don't know really uh, what this economic plan consists of, what the total dollar figure is. We do know from reporting and from comments made by Greenblatt and Kushner uh, that the, the sum total of the economic package is not for the Palestinians only, it's for the neighborhood, so it's for the Jordanians, it's for the Egyptians, it's for the Palestinians, it may be for others as well, as I suggested earlier, maybe the Moroccans would get a little piece of the action too. Um, and I think the assumption is that the majority of that dollar amount would come from the Gulf. Uh, some other uh, portion of it might come from the United States, uh, and some might come from other traditional donors to Middle East peace, like Japan, or the European Union, assuming that they're willing to sign on. So, you know, you might have a big round number that makes a lot of assumptions about actors' willingness to buy in. Um, and, you know, one thing I would say about that as somebody who has worked on uh, American assistance in this part of the world um, in government is that a lot of times these conferences have a big round number, uh, and that big round number counts and includes in it a lot of things that are already happening. And so, you know, take the Egyptians. The Saudis and Emiratis have been subsidizing the Egyptians to the tune of, you know, probably about 12 to $15 billion in the years between the coup in 2013 and today. Um, the Saudis have been uh, giving the Jordanians about a billion dollars a year. You know, so if you want a big round number, you can say over the next 10 years and include all that money that they would give anyway. <laughs> so we're not necessarily talking about a lot of new money. Um, the new money, I presume, would be primarily for the Palestinians. But of course, given that the, Pal the current Palestinian leadership is unwilling to accept the premise of this economic plan, uh, they're not going to see any of that money unless they change leadership to one that is willing to buy into this plan. And so essentially it's, um, it's holding Palestinian aid to the Palestinian hostage to uh, a willingness by uh, the Palestinian body politic, I guess, to somehow overcome its own leadership. And I think there is embedded in there a fundamental mistaken assumption, which is that uh, Palestinians are more upset with their own leadership than they are committed to their own self-determination. And that to me is just a, a crazy assumption, but it seems to be one that is fairly um, prominent in what I hear from Trump administration officials. So looking at another question from the audience and, and stepping a little bit outside of the Middle East region itself, um, Jonah Nagy raises the question of how another uh, country would react to uh, the idea of West Bank annexation. Um, how he asks how Russia would respond you know, as a country that uh, it has its own uh, budding relationship with Israel, but historically um, has taken a pro-Palestinian stance at the government level. Um, 
how would that uh, impact their their approach to the broader Middle East? Um, because officially, as we know, they support a two-state solution, um, but they also, uh, the government there has a close relationship with Netanyahu, um, amicable relationship with him. Um, so how can we expect to see that uh, play out? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a very good question to ponder. I mean, first of all, you know, yes, historically, especially during the Cold War, um, the Soviet Union was uh, pro-Palestinian. Um, but I think that in recent years, and certainly under Putin's leadership, Russia has tried to have a fairly balanced approach toward Israel and the Palestinian leadership. Um, so, you know, you'll see visits in both directions um, with both Israelis and Palestinians. The, the relationship with Israel is significant. It's not, it's not just uh, a few phone calls. It includes um, the fact that there are a lot of folks um, formerly from Russia who are living in Israel now and, and who go back and forth. There is a strong economic relationship between the two countries. Uh, and of course, they have this relationship of coordination on Syria in recent years as well that's become increasingly important to Israel. And so it's not a small relationship. Um, now, in addition to all of that, the Russians have their own independent interests. Uh, in the question of Israeli annexation of territory conquered in what Israel says, and I would agree historically, was a defensive war, which is that the Russians have annexed territory that they conquered in what they describe as defensive war in Crimea. Um, and, uh, and then there's the, the question of the areas in Georgia that uh, have declared their secession from the Republic of Georgia. And you know, this is a major bone of contention between the United States and Russia. Um, and so Trump may be prepared for his own reasons to recognize Israeli annexation of settlement blocks. I think Putin might be prepared for his own reasons to recognize Israeli annexation of settlement blocks. I don't rule it out. It's an interesting uh, way of looking at it, especially the comparison between two annexations in, in two different parts of the world. Um, so we have one more question from Jonathan Jacoby, who raises the idea of annexation as, um, you know, sort of uh, presaged, that it's definitely going to happen. And if annexation is going to happen, um, is there a way for uh, the Jewish people and for Israeli Jews, um, Israelis to express their own national self-determination within a democratic framework um, under the parameters and the constraints that West Bank annexation is going to place on Israel. So I'm, I guess I'm trying to understand the foundation of Johnny's question. I think the, the premise there is that it would be annexation eventually of the entire West Bank and not only of blocks that are um, primarily, if not exclusively pop populated by Israeli settlers. Uh, and so that raises immediately the sort of demographic question, um, and could Israel remain a democratic state uh, in that context? And, you know, practically speaking, there are two uh, ways to go. Were Israel to annex all of the West Bank, 
pathway number one would be to grant citizenship to the Palestinians living in that territory, as Israel did to the Jewish residents of the Golan, um, and to offer them the same deal that they offer Palestinian citizens living inside the Green Line. Um, pathway number two is not to do that, uh, either to make citizenship conditional, the way they do for uh, Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem, or uh, simply not to make it an option, not to make it available. Um, and either uh, of those would present, I think, problematic questions about the nature of Israeli democracy, um, because the, the, <laughs> the nature of annexation um, is that it is a declaration of permanent ownership, um, rightful ownership. And that incurs a set of immediate obligations with respect to the people um, living in that territory that's different from the set of obligations that are incurred by a military occupier. And even though I know the word occupation has become a, a taboo word in some Jewish communities in the United States, um, the IDF knows that it is a military occupier of the West Bank and it governs uh, to the extent that it it um, believes it can do so, it governs in accordance with the international law of occupation. Uh, and the international law of annexation would demand citizenship for these people. Uh, and, and so I, I do think that's a real challenge. I think Israelis I have talked to about that question, um, there's a certain degree of magical thinking that comes in almost immediately to the extent that, well, Palestinians won't stay or, well, um, you know, they're going to get more educated and their birth rates are going to go down and our birth rates are going up because we have so many Kharadim and so demographically the balance won't be a problem. Um, and, you know, some have said, well, let them have a parliament for their community and we'll have a parliament for the rest of Israel. Um, none of these <laughs> ideas, I think, are rooted in re reality, the reality of people's daily lives, the reality of politics the reality of, of international politics. Um, and so I, I, this is one of the reasons why I say that I think the Israeli proponents of annexation, even as limited annexation of blocks, are thinking about an immediate problem they're trying to solve or an immediate opportunity they're trying to seize. They're not thinking about the medium-term and long-term consequences. They don't really have practical answers to these basic questions that arise in the wake of annexation. And that, you know, if nothing else, that says to me, this is not the time for Israel to do this. There is no urgency to this. And it requires uh, more thoughtfulness and more strategy than I, I currently observe. So we have one last question, then we're, we're before we close this off, um, from Avner Porat, who asks about the Palestinian side um, in looking at the uh, resolution to the conflict. And if there's anyone on the Palestinian side who can come in um, in place of the, of the current leadership and have a more effective negotiating relationship with Israel, um, if there's any possibility for a more um, effective Palestinian leadership in that sense. Okay, so... Um you know, I, I think that there's, there's often something in the Israeli narrative about the negotiations that they have had 
with the PLO over the last um, 25 years to the, to the effect that, you know, somehow Palestinians don't have politics and somehow the problem is in the personality or the individual preferences of the Palestinian leader in question. Um, but the fact is Palestinians do have politics, just like everywhere else, even dictatorships have politics. Uh, we were talking about Saudi Arabia. Even the king of Saudi Arabia thinks about what might upset his people, what might make his people happy or um, happier with him or more upset with him. Um, and uh, Mahmoud Abbas um, may, in fact, have a very risk-averse nature. He may, in fact, you know, have been unable to um, take the risks necessary to forge an agreement with the Israelis. Um, but it is also the case that he faces uh, a very difficult political situation in which many Palestinians do not um, any longer believe that a two-state solution is available to them, uh, and they no longer believe that the Israelis are willing to implement a two-state solution. And, you know, <laughs> given that we're all talking about annexation, one would think they're pretty rational to wonder, to think that maybe the Israelis are no longer interested in a two-state solution. So, you know, that's not a problem you can wish away, and it's not a quirk of Mahmoud Abbas's personality. It's reality. It's a bare majority, a thin majority of Palestinians who in polls still support a two-state solution, just as it is a bare thin majority of Israelis in polls who still support a two-state solution. And any future Palestinian leader, maybe he won't be as risk-averse in his personality as Mahmoud Abbas, but he's still going to face that Palestinian population, those Palestinian politics. And moreover, he's going to have to establish his legitimacy as a ruler. Um, it's not going to be something he can root in his history in the PLO uh, as a fighter or as the successor designated by Yasser Arafat. No future Palestinian leader is going to have that kind of legitimacy. So for any future leader, it will be harder, I think, than it is for Mahmoud Abbas. Um, I, I, I would love to say, you know, oh, no, I know this guy. He's 45. He's fantastic. He's a rising power in the Fatah party and he'll make peace with Israel. But I, like I said, I think you really have to look at the bones, the political structure, the political incentives that, you know, and it's not as though those are immutable. Leadership does matter. We know that. We saw that with Rabin. We saw it with Sadat. You know, we saw it with LBJ. Um, leadership matters a lot. Leaders can shift public opinion and they can build political consensus and they can do big things. But it's not easy. It's hard and it takes talent and it takes partnership. And so what I would say is when there is uh, an Israeli politics that supports partnering with Palestinians on behalf of peace, uh, and when there is a new Palestinian leadership um, that does not suffer from the, the kind of legacy of um, impaired legitimacy of Mahmoud Abbas, then you have the possibility that Israeli leaders and Palestinian leaders could help each other find their way to peace. Um, that's, that's, I think, how I could best describe the scenario that I that I would hope to see a scenario that could lead to renewed negotiation and a resolution of the conflict. 
Great. Well, that's uh, something that we're going to have to be paying attention to as, you know, there's a, always a possibility um, and increasingly now of a leadership change with the Palestinians, um, the question of who is going to be Mahmoud Abbas's successor down the line. So this has been really great, Tamara. Thank you for joining us for this call. It's been really comprehensive covering everything from the reaction from Saudi Arabia and the Saudi-aligned governments to the reaction of the Iranian-aligned bloc and the Trump plan. Um, so this has been really great. And thank you to everyone who signed on. Um, we have a couple of quick announcements to run through, um, some great projects that are ongoing and coming up from Israel Policy Forum. Um, we have, of course, our, our ongoing initiatives, our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, every week, new episodes, our Israel Policy Exchange blog, um, the Annexation Watch initiative, which this was a part of, um, which includes videos, briefings, podcasts, uh, policy reports on the impacts of West Bank annexation and the ramifications, um, as well as features from our partners in Israel for Israel security. Um, and you can find that on our website. Uh, we also have our 120 project, our Israeli elections and politics resource, uh, which may be relevant again sooner than we thought. Um, and IPF Atid, our National Young Professionals uh, Network, uh, with chapters all around the country. And uh, the deadline to apply for the Charles Bronfman Convener Summit uh, is coming up on Friday, May 31st. That's our IPF Atid Young Professionals Summit. Um, it's a really great opportunity. You get to meet a lot of really um, great and accomplished people. And uh, the deadline for that is this Friday, May 31st. And then lastly, uh, we have an ongoing matching gift campaign to support this Annexation Watch initiative and uh, continue to build awareness with the Jewish community, with policymakers about West Bank annexation. And there are just three days remaining uh, in our Annexation Watch matching gift campaign. Uh, we still need to raise $25,000. Um, all new and increased gifts are going to be matched dollar for dollar up to $75,000. And your support is really critical in ensuring that a two-state vision and opposition to West Bank annexation remain at the top of the Jewish communal and legislative agendas. Um, so please consider that. Um, you can go to our website at israelpolicyforum.org um, and you'll see a notice at the top about that. So thanks again to everyone who joined and uh, we hope you'll join us next time uh, for our next uh, briefing, our next program in your area uh, from Israel Policy Forum.